Good evening. How are we doing tonight, Maranatha? Awesome. Awesome. I am so glad you guys are here and we are in for a treat because Paul and Virginia Friesen are here with us. They're going to be sharing tonight on the subject of marriage. So anybody that came in here fighting, you came in here angry, upset, you were dragging your feet, we're going to figure it all out. Everybody's going to leave here with a perfect marriage. And then if you come back tomorrow night, they're going to fix all the problems with all your kids or your money back guaranteed. Whatever you paid to get in here, you get all of that back on your way out. Um, Did all of you get one of these on your way in today? If you did not, this is their handout. They're going to be working through this, and this is something you can take home and and meditate on and pray through. There's a lot of scripture, a lot of great insight in here. If you didn't get one, uh, just slip your hand up, and Jared will make sure that you get one of those. Um, But I just want to take a minute to introduce our guests. You hopefully were here this weekend. If you didn't, Get to hear them this weekend. They were preaching and did a fantastic job, and that's available on the web. So you can find that either on our website or on our YouTube channel. Uh, But Paul and Virginia have been married for 47 and a half years, I found out. Praise the Lord. That's that's worth applauding in this day and age, don't you think? Who here has been married longer than 47 years and you're here tonight? I love that. Still investing in your marriage? That is That is something to applaud as well. Let's just give them a round of applause. How many years, guys? 50 next August. Anybody got 50 beat? What do you? 54 years of wedded bliss. I love it. Praise the Lord. So maybe after Paul and Virginia, they can come and ask you their questions at the end of the night. But uh, 47 and a half years married and, and 47 and a half years in ministry together. And I told them what I love about them is that when you interact with them, when you get to know them, there's a, an affinity, there's an obvious love that they have for each other. And um, like any other married couple, they'll tell you, we're always working on things. But you can just tell they like being with each other. And so um, those of us who are beneath that threshold of 47 years, we can look at marriages that we want to model or pattern our marriages after, and we can learn and we can glean. They also have three beautiful daughters who love them and love the Lord. And so I'm so excited to get to sit with you all and Give the microphone to somebody else for a change. Will you please join me in welcoming our guests this evening, Paul and Virginia Friesen. Thank you so much, Daniel. It has been our joy to be here. Uh, This is our first time at Maranatha and meeting so many uh, at family camp this summer. We just were looking forward to it and have not been disappointed. It is just a great being in your midst. But we're no strangers to San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. My dad was in the Navy. I graduated from San Diego State. We got married in San Diego. In fact, there are some people in this audience that were at our wedding 47 years ago. I see you back there. And I think Paul already shared this on Sunday, but the first night of our honeymoon was at the Hotel Del Coronado. It was $60 a night. He called them on our 10th anniversary and said... My wife and I got married in 1976, 10 years ago. We stayed in room 263. I want to bring her back as a surprise for our 10th anniversary. And and the receptionist said, oh, my goodness, romance hasn't died. And she was just going on. And I said, how much would that be? (laughs) And she said, like $500. I said, romance just died. (laughs) 
So we happily walk the beach in front of Hotel Del Coronado anytime we're in San Diego. And it has truly been just such a pleasure to be here, to be partnering, to seeing what God is doing in this very vital, dynamic church. So thank you, Daniel, for trusting us. Thank you, Jared, for putting this together and all the team that has helped make it happen. Who's the couple's been married 54 years? Where, where are they? What, what's the secret? Persistence. Here, take that book back to them, please. So you get a free book for staying married that long to each other. Right back there. Uh, well, we are just uh, delighted to be with you. We don't know you, uh, and we don't know where you are tonight in your marriage. Some may be like the person who said it was ideal, and then marriage became an ordeal. And then they wanted a new deal. And in an audience this size, we are sure some of you are just here because there's free childcare and snacks, and you don't even know what the topic is. Um, and marriage is ideal. You've been married for two weeks, and everything is perfect. Uh, others of you, though, may say, if we're honest, it's a little more of an ordeal. There are financial issues, temperament issues we're struggling with, in-law issues, financial issues, health issues. And there may be a few here that are saying, if we're really honest, we're ready for a new deal. Unless something changes, we want to cash this thing in. And our prayer for us all tonight is that God would move us closer to his heart and his design for marriage. So let's pray together as we start. Father, it's so good to be in your house with your people, and we are thankful for your word and for your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that tonight your Holy Spirit would take your word and weave it into each of our hearts at a point that we need to hear from you a word of hope or of challenge, encouragement, whatever it is. And so we express our complete dependence on you at this time, and we look forward in anticipation what you will do in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. I was flying uh, to San Francisco. We were flying in my seatmate, and I started talking, and uh, he said, well, what do you do, you know, for a living? I saw my wife and I travel and speak on marriage. He said, oh, wow. He said, how long have you been married? And it was 45 years at that time. And he said, wow, that's amazing. I said, what about you? He said, three years. And I said, well, how's it going? He says, not that good. <laughs> and I, he said, what is it that keeps you married for 47 years? And just, I said, you know, a couple things are just uh, really putting the needs of the other person ahead of yourself, what we call sacrificial love. We come from a Christian perspective. And then just the whole area of expressing love through love and respect uh, to each other. And we chatted for a long time, and, and that's really where we're going to focus tonight, on those two topics. First, on sacrificial love, and then after the break and snacks, we'll talk about love and respect, tying it back to Genesis uh, where the whole thing went haywire from God's original design. But uh, tonight, our first session, we're going to look at sacrificial love, and we're going to use uh, five Ds. Uh, D was just the letter that came most naturally to me in college, and so it's, uh, I use it whenever I do an outline. It's just there. So the first is our desire. We have a desire for marital intimacy. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So right from the beginning, God set a desire for partnership. And it was not good for Adam to be alone. He gave Adam a partner, and they could be better together. And so I think when we get married, we are expecting intimacy. We're longing for intimacy. But often we find that a little elusive. When I do a wedding, 
I meet with that couple for the last session before the actual ceremony, and I don't start it by now, how long did you folks plan to be married? Because if it's two years or less, it's about a 10-minute ceremony. If you plan to be married 15 years, a little more complex, 54 years, that's a long ceremony. No, every couple that walks down that aisle expects to be married forever and ever. But we know statistically and experientially that that is not the case. But we enter into this relationship because God has put in us a desire to have a relationship, an intimate relationship with another person. Which actually is what explains why we still get married, even though the rate of marriages is dropping significantly as the rate of cohabitation continues to increase. But the truth of the matter is, if we ask you to raise up your hand, if there's somebody in your life whose marriage you really respect and honor and you want your marriage to be like theirs, a lot of times not many hands go up. So it's not any big surprise that marriage has taken a beating and that many, many people find it to be a very challenging relationship to maintain in a healthy, vital way. And so why do we keep getting married? We really believe that that's just part of God's work in our own hearts to give us this desire. I was actually flying from Boston to San Diego to visit my mom a few years back. Usually Paul and I travel always together, but I was by myself. So this woman sitting next to me saw that I was an easy target. And she started talking before we took off and she didn't take a break for the next 30 minutes. The topic was what she did. It turns out that she owned a bridal shop in downtown New York, and she was thrilled to tell me about all of the labels that she carried in her shop. And then she said, in fact, it's my greatest joy in life when I match the right dress with the right woman for the best day of her life. At that point, she paused 30 minutes later. She looked at me and she said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, thank you for asking. I said, actually, my husband and I are both marriage counselors. And you know those brides that you work so hard to match up with the perfect dress for the best day of their life? I said, we actually try to keep them married. <laughs> to which she said, oh, that is a really good idea. <laughs> she said, marriage is harder than it looks. She said, in fact, I have two daughters in their upper 20s. They've both already divorced their first husbands. And she said, I myself have been married twice and I'm currently single. She said, marriage is harder than it looks. So we often, uh, we have this desire for intimacy, but we often don't experience it. We find it a bit elusive. We were driving on 101 up to San Luis Obispo a number of years ago, and we came across this billboard. Very clever billboard. You can read it. The relationship may not last, but our diamonds will. This was just prior to Valentine's Day, and we thought, very clever advertising, but sadly, it actually does carry a truth that for many, many, many people, the diamond outlasts the relationship. But I believe that if push comes to shove, if we ask any person in this room or anywhere else, which would you rather have, a big diamond or a relationship that lasts? I think that all of us would land in that latter category because we actually weren't designed for diamonds. We were designed for relationship. And when we start our marriage together, we're pretty intentional, most of us. We're spending time together. We're looking for ways to connect with each other. But uh, if you're like I am, uh, I, as we were married longer, became a little lazy. 
and not quite as intentional about showing my love for Virginia and being creative in how I express that. We were in Tacoma, Washington with some friends at a Panera, and we are having breakfast there for about a half hour, and we looked over and there was a couple sitting just across from us, and this is how this couple sat for 30 minutes. They never changed for 30 minutes, and we thought, that's what happens often. They think they're going on a date. They think they're connecting. And it's so easy, the longer we're married, to become less intentional about how we are showing it. So there is a challenge in this marriage. So what do we do? Well, the second D is the dilemma we have for being created as opposites. Now, you'd think if God wanted us uh, to get along and to be unified, he created us more like each other. But Scripture says that the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that word suitable for him literally means like, but like opposite. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So we want to start with God in Genesis intentionally creating us opposite each other. And this is before sin entered the world that he said, I'm going to give you somebody who's like you, who is, bears the image, who is equal, but who is opposite you, who is in many ways very different than you. And it's believed that that's part of how God presents his whole character in humanity is the complementarity between men and women, the two genders that he created, that we would together fully reflect, have the potential of fully reflecting the image of God. And I just want to underscore what Paul said when we read that word helper. Some of us go to a place of supporting that women are somehow inferior, they're not equal to, and we just want to shout it here that that is not at all what that is saying. Men and women are 100% equal. We're both image bearers of God, but we were designed to be different, and that does not make us unequal. But by God's design, he did make us to be different. And I don't know how it's gone down in your relationship, but as I mentioned earlier, we were married in San Diego, Chula Vista, California, actually in 1976. And honestly, I didn't think that Paul and I would ever be challenged with anything. We both came from strong Christian families. We both had a similar vision for ministry. We absolutely loved being together. I just couldn't think of anything that could possibly trip us up. But it was about 48 hours into our marriage <laughs> that we were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway to Santa Cruz, our ultimate destination, when suddenly a squirrel ran across the street right in front of us. And at the exact moment, we whipped our heads around to see what had happened to that squirrel. And simultaneously, I said, oh, and Paul said, got it. <laughs> it was the first low moment of our honeymoon. And that headed a list that has become very long through the years of things that we would view differently, that we would react to differently, that we would see differently, that we would appreciate differently. And part of that is because God made us different. Yeah, so as we highlight a few of these, remember this is God's design. And by the end of our four hours tonight, we'll have that hopefully figured out why he did it. But God is the one who created us like but like opposite. And so we're going to highlight three areas of differences. One is, two of them have to do with gender. Uh, and these are generalizations, but generalizations are generally true. And the first one is with the whole area of communication. Have you ever noticed that often you communicate differently? 
and let us just show you a video of a comedian, Brian Regan, who we love, who I think illustrates this so very, very well, how true it is. I come home from a day of work, and Virginia says, how was your day? And I say, fine. That is a complete paragraph. <laughs> Nothing else needs to be said. And then she starts on a litany of annoying questions. Well, what do you mean fine? What did you do all day? Did you go to lunch? Who did you go to lunch with? Where did you go to lunch? What did you have for lunch? Who paid for lunch? You didn't eat dessert, did you? It just goes on and on. Nobody taught me to say fine. Nobody taught Virginia to ask a litany of questions. But somehow we are wired differently as male and female. Another area is our sexual makeup. And again, it's a generalization. Uh, physical intimacy is one of those great gifts. It's God's creation. I think it's the best idea he ever had. Uh, and yet, all of these things that we're going to mention tonight, God created them for his good and for our unity, and Satan's going to work to turn them. And this is one of the areas. Uh, and, but he designed us differently as men and women, and a generalization is true. You know, you may be having a, a horrible day as a couple, you're bickering all day, fighting, and you fall in bed exhausted at 11 o'clock at night. Husband rolls over and says, want to do it? The wife says, do what? And the husband says, have sex. And the wife says, I don't even like you. And the husband says, so? And he means it. We are wired differently. A wife gets undressed in front of her husband. He's excited. He gets undressed in front of her. He's, she's tired. It just, we're very, very, very different. But it's God who made us this way. Even our drives are different. And uh, Mark Gunger helps us understand about how we, we start with a really high sex drive, especially as a male. So watch the screen for this. So just as in the area of communication, in this area of our sexual relationship, uh, it's helpful to depersonalize this and to realize we're just wired differently and to seek, and as we'll continue to talk, how are we better together appreciating our differences? A third area of differences, which has nothing to do with gender, is our temperament, how we're wired, our personalities with each other. And you've probably heard the statement that opposites attract, but you probably didn't hear the second part of that is, and then potentially attack. And it's so true that we are probably subconsciously attracted to somebody who's very, very different than us. Typologists would say that's because we intuitively recognize that they bring something into our life that we need, that will be complementary, that will actually be better together. It's certainly true for Paul and me. I don't think we saw the differences in our personalities truthfully at all before we got married. We just thought we worked well together. This was great. And then we found out that we just do life really, really differently. I'm energized by people. Paul is drained by people. I'll be the last person out of an event. Paul will head for the door as quickly as he can. I think everything at home has its place, and it should stay in that place unless you're using it. And when you're done using it, you return it to its home. I had no idea that I was marrying a man who believes everything is homeless. <laughs> and wherever he last used it is his new temporary home, and it actually should be there when he goes to find it, but it's not because I've put it where it goes. That makes sense to me. I actually think God is pleased with that way of living. <laughs> But I married a man who's incredibly gifted visionarily. 
He dreams dreams. He has visions that move things forward. He lives in the future. He's not very much in the present. I will often say he's really never where he appears to be because his mind is someplace out ahead of him. I am so not futuristic oriented. I am a here and now person. And again, that makes sense to me. And because of my problem with self-righteousness, I actually also think it's the right way to live. And so we spent the early years of our marriage spent giving up too much relational connectedness because I felt that it was my duty to help Paul become an adult, <laughs> that he would learn how to do life right. And of course, I was the definition of what is right. But understanding our temperament differences was incredibly helpful to us, and it actually freed us to embrace our differences and see them as coming together in a way that makes us better, which is something the enemy never, ever wants us to figure out. He wants to keep us in the ring, fighting with one another over the right way to do things. And at some point, somebody gives up, and all of a sudden, you have this great distance in your marriage. But again, it was God's design that we would be different. And let me just say before we leave this point that with both communication and sexuality, we believe that God's heart for men and women across the board is that we would both see these as reflective of his very image, that he has great things for men and women in the area of how we communicate, in the area of how we relate sexually. Nobody gets a short shrift here by God's design. The enemy often plays into our differences, and he divides us over those very, very things that God intended would really bring us together. We're uh, so different. Um, Virginia mentioned that she's the extrovert, I'm the introvert. That's surprising to people because I speak publicly and I'm hilarious, and you know, people say, oh, you must be an extrovert. It doesn't mean, I'm what's called a professional extrovert. That means I act like I like you, but I don't. Um, <laughs> No, that's not what it means. But what it means is I am exhausted by being in little groups and meeting new people. Like, shove bamboo up my fingernails, but don't make me to go to a new small group. Uh, where Virginia thrives on that sort of thing. And as I said, um, we didn't really notice how different we were until we began living together, which was after we got married. And these things, many, many of them, we've learned to just bridge the gaps. And we've also just learned to accept, okay, we're different. And oftentimes that just brings a certain amount of humor into our life when we choose to see it that way. For instance, Paul makes a great salsa, and I know every single time he's made salsa because there's tomato juice dribbling down the front of the cabinet where he makes it. And I walk in, it's the only thing I see when I walk in the kitchen. And if Paul is in the kitchen still, I'll say, oh, wow, did you notice that that cabinet is wearing your salsa? He has, yeah, nope, didn't notice that. Oh, wow, yeah, it is. It's inconceivable to me that he would miss all of that. The same is true in just how we order life. We were in a hotel in Baltimore having just finished a conference. We were getting ready to go home. I was sitting on the bed finishing up some things, writing, and I looked at our two suitcases, which were sitting side by side on the floor against the wall. They hadn't been zipped closed yet, and this is what I saw when I looked over. This is my suitcase, I'm all ready to go back home, and right next to it was Paul's. Now, the operative thing is ready to go home, <laughs> right? So the clothes were dirty. Why would you fold? dirty clothes. 
You're going to wash them when you get home? <laughs> I think I'd like to show of hand, though. <laughs> The truth of the matter is that because Paul thinks everything is dirty in his suitcase, he just picks it all up and throws it into the washer, and then it comes out with his sock still rolled up that had never been worn, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, all, the sum total is that I can feel that the way I do life is morally defensible. I can build a biblical case for how I do life. I'm a good steward. I take care of things. I think ahead. I plan. Da, da, da. But I have to tell you, I had to move off of that moral high ground to see who God had made Paul to be. And I realized that I had the potential as his wife to discourage him in his own giftings, to be critical of him at every turn so that he would lose heart. We have a lot of power in each other's lives. And for those of us who are tracking with this and saying, boy, our temperament differences have really caused a lot of tension in our marriage. One of the things we're going to challenge you to do tonight, even on your way home, is to talk about are our temperament differences making us less Christ-like towards one another? Or are we willing to let the Lord change our hearts so that we don't feel that the way we do it is the only way to do it, and we have space to allow our spouse to be who God has made them to be. The third D is deception uh, from Satan. Create questions about the authority of God's word is one of the things. And in Genesis, again, it says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? But one of the things that Satan started doing right from the beginning is questioning God's word. Is this really true? And boy, is there ever a time more than today where that's been true, where we're saying, I don't think that's really what God's word means. First, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4 puts it so well, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Is that today or what? That we, we associate with people, oh yeah, they believe like I do. And we follow our emotions or our hormones, uh, our experiences, instead of saying, no, this is what God's word means. And so did God really mean this? Yes, he did. The second thing that Satan did in the garden is he raises questions about God's goodness. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The, the thing that Satan was doing here is trying to create dissatisfaction. You think of the Garden of Eden, they had a perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with nature. Uh, they ran around naked. I mean, what could be better? Everything was good, and then Satan said, oh, oh no, God's holding something from you. God's holding something. You should eat from this tree. They could eat from every tree except one, and Satan makes a big point of that. And what Satan was trying to do is create dissatisfaction, and Satan is doing that today in spades. And we see it more and more in marriages that Satan is working hard just to make us dissatisfied. Irreconcilable differences is the reason we get divorced. We're just different. We're just not satisfied with each other. We moved to New England for one year and then stayed for 32 in 1991. When we got there, people said, you came from California? You used to live in California? Yes, they said, oh, those people are crazy. 
And we said, yeah, to some extent. But the reason they thought Californians were crazy, because you live in a state that has earthquakes. And they said, why would anybody live in a state that has earthquakes? And they were shocked when I told them that more houses are destroyed in California by termites than by earthquakes. And we don't want to minimize marital earthquakes, but marital termites are what take more marriages down. They're just little termites, marital termites that just keep eating at the infrastructure, the structure of the integrity of our marriage. And all of a sudden, oh, we don't love each other. It falls down. So we need to be vigilant about exterminating those little marital termites when they come up. Uh, so this desire for this design then of God, where's the hope in this? Well, the design is sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is really the antidote for what is going wrong in marriages, we believe. And that's, we all actually believe that's why God intentionally created us different as men and women. If Virginia and I were exactly the same, I couldn't express love to her. Because what's the greatest expression of love that's ever been demonstrated on the face of the earth? Yeah, the cross. And that is through sacrifice. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you know, when we talk about love, sacrifice is almost always connected. Boy, that couple really loved their children. Look what they gave up to go. Or, boy, he loves his wife. Look what he... It's almost always sacrifice is connected. You feel more loved by your husband if you know that he's sacrificing something for you. Uh, so how do we do that? Well, the first thing is to love sacrificially, you must really know your spouse. And my guess is that in the early days of falling in love with one another and through your courtship and maybe even through the early years of your marriage, you, if you were like us, had a pretty insatiable desire to know each other better and better. We took notes. I'll never forget the very first formal date that Paula and I went on was actually at Sunset Cliffs right here in North San Diego. We had become friends, really close friends. And as our relationship started to move towards romance, I got a typewritten letter in the mail you can Google afterwards what a typewriter is. It came by snail mail to my parents' house, inviting me on this great date in San Diego, be ready at 6 o'clock Friday night. Paul arrived at our house. I was living with my parents still. In his 1955 Ford station wagon, which was old actually even then. And before we got in the car, he said, do you mind if I blindfold you? Because I don't want you to see where we're going. Now, when I share this story with college women, I say, you must know the man very well before you let him blindfold you. But I felt like Paul's character was very clear, so sure, I like a surprise. Off we drove, stopping only one time on the way when Paul said, oh, I forgot something at my apartment, just wait in the car while I get it. I actually should have paid more attention to that because it was definitely a harbinger of things that would come in our life, of many forgotten items, but... Off we continued, eventually getting somewhere. I had no idea where we were. Paul said, stay in the car. I have to make sure our reservations are ready. By the time he walked me, still blindfolded, to this place and took off the blindfold, he had set up a card table, two place settings, candlelight, 
the little tape recorder that he had forgotten on the first round as it crooned the melodies of the Carpenters, our favorite group. And he had made dinner from salad through strawberry shortcake. And I will never forget, as he served the salad, he said, before you eat any salad, I just need to tell you that I heard you say you love avocados. And this was before the world was run by avocados. This is way back then. I heard you say you love avocados. I've never bought one. So I don't know if I got it right. I don't know if it was hard or soft or whatever. So forgive me in advance if this isn't right. And upon biting into the avocado, he was right that he did not know how to buy one because it was very hard. But what I remember so clearly from that night was it just didn't matter. What mattered was that this man had listened to a passing comment and he had taken notes on it in his mind and brought those out at a really, really opportune time. That's the process of knowing a person. We had a couple who came up to us after a conference we did and they were steaming mad still over a birthday celebration that had been had several weeks earlier. And the wife said, tell my husband that he was really, really wrong to do what he did for my birthday. And we were quite mystified by that. We said, well, what happened? He steps in at this point and said, I made her a cake. She yells back, and I don't even like cake. He said, I worked for three days to make a really special cake for her birthday. We've been married for 15 years, and I thought it would be just the best thing to honor her with this cake. She said, I don't like cake. I've never really liked cake. They fought in front of us for a while. We suggested, well, maybe pay more attention in this next year to what each other likes. Start taking notes on each other. Well, I want to tell you that sometimes we've had an experience like that where we feel sort of stuck, like, ah, oh, they don't really love me because they don't really pay attention. They don't know really what's important to me. A year later, we got an email. The subject line was the cake lady. And her first line was, I don't know if you remember us. <laughs> oh, you were quite unforgettable. But she said, I just want to tell you that my husband and I took your advice very seriously. And she said, we just celebrated my birthday last week. And this year, my husband hand-dipped nuts in dark chocolate. And that's my favorite thing. And she said, I feel so loved. And I just offer that to you tonight because I think the enemy sometimes wants to convince us that whatever wrongs we've done can never be righted, that we're just going to be stuck in this place. Okay, we're going to honor the covenant because we're going to stay married, but we're going to be miserable while we're married because we're, we're missing each other so consistently. Believe tonight that God is the one who can help you overcome those places that you continue to miss each other that a surrendered heart to him that says, no, 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 I want to be the spouse that you've called me to be. I want our marriage to reflect your glory. I want to do what I can do in this marriage. And a great starting point in us learning how to sacrificially love one another more deeply is for us to pay attention to what's important to our spouse. So when we know our spouse, then the second step is to do something with that knowledge. I love John 13, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, this is what is said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed. And then there are four more words added, if you do them. Blessing doesn't come from knowing. Blessing comes from acting on that knowledge. And so often, even if we know something, we say, oh, I don't do that. Well, if we don't do it, you're not going to expect 
you're not going to experience the blessing that you have. We tell the story of Lou and Grace, they're friends of ours, who, with their permission, we tell their story. They'd been married for 30 years when we were in a room with them, and Lou told Grace, I've never loved you a day of our marriage. It was a little awkward for us to be in the room, but it was devastating for Grace. From a human standpoint, they never should have been married. Lou was raised in foster homes and orphanages, and he grew up to be a heavy equipment diesel mechanic. He was always disheveled, his clothes dirty, always grease under his fingernails, and and Grace was Dutch in every form of the word. Never had a hair out of place, all her clothes matched, never had a speck of dirt under a fingernail. And uh, Grace loved going to Uh, quilting exhibits and um, craft shows where Lou liked going to rodeos and drag races. Well, by God's grace and their work, a year and a half later, they got together and we took them to the Nutcracker Ballet in, in Boston. At intermission, I went up to Lou and I said, so Lou, you like ballet, huh? And he looked me in the eye and he said, I love my wife. And Lou felt about ballet like our youngest daughter, Julie, when we took her. We said, how'd you like the ballet? She said it was okay, except for the dancing. (laughs) But you see, Lou goes to ballet, and Lou goes to craft shows, and Lou goes to quilting exhibits, and Grace goes to rodeos, and Grace goes to drag races. Not because their preferences have changed, but because their hearts have changed. And that's at the core of this, is when we sacrificially love each other, we say, I'm doing this because this brings you joy. This is something that you would enjoy doing. And it's very practical in our own lives. Um, I love hot tubs, hot tubs, jacuzzis. Virginia hates public jacuzzis. She thinks it's like a big bathtub that people have been doing who knows what in, and, and her skin gets all dry, and she has to oil her whole body after she gets out. And we were asked to speak in Hawaii, and here I am, Lord, send me. So we went, and um, I'm in a jacuzzi overlooking the Pacific. It's, it's a killer jacuzzi, and in comes Virginia next to me. And when I looked at her, I didn't think first, oh, I guess she likes jacuzzis. What I thought is she really loves me. And see, it's often those little simple things. It's just, I know you like this. Let me do this for you. And it was so good to just check that off the list, and I never have to get in a jacuzzi. No. (laughs) (laughs) But again, just knowing each other is so critical in this, in in the application of it. Um, I love to bake, and I love to bake from scratch, and I love to steward things well. Some of you know that we worked with the New England Patriots for about 22 years, leading a couple study every Thursday night during the season. It was at the probably in the early part of November that the hosting couple was a very good friend of ours. As we were leaving their house, she said to me, hey, we have a 50-pound pumpkin. I'm going to probably put it out for the trash this week unless you want to take it home. And my eyes lit right up like, I've never had a 50-pound pumpkin, but that'll make a lot of baked goods. So I said, let me check with Paul, knowing that he would be the one who would have to slay the pumpkin. He said, sure, let's bring it home, put it in the back of the car. And I'll be very honest with you when I tell you that I thought that that might be the demise of the pumpkin, that it would probably stay in the back of our car until it went out in our trash, because Paul's always going forward, this futuristic personality. But the next day, I was out doing errands, and by the time I came home, I walked in on the scene in our kitchen 
of Paul kneeling on the floor with half of this ginormous pumpkin. He had slayed it. Half of it was already in the oven, and he was just beginning to scoop out the insides of this pumpkin. And I said, thank you so much. I am so touched that you would take the time to do this. And with a very genuine smile and a sincerity that was unmistakable, he said, I love doing these things for you. Now, what I also knew he was thinking was, I wonder if she knows that pumpkin comes in cans, that it's on sale at this time of year. I mean, she could be a good steward that way, and that my time is far more valuable than chopping up a big old pumpkin. But what he said to me was, I love doing this for you, and he really meant it. And that's really the joy that comes in sacrificial love. It's knowing how to honor our spouse. It's knowing how to meet them, to meet their needs where we can, and doing it joyfully. So note to self, if you do something, make sure you don't say something like, well, I hope you're happy. I mean, you know, I hate cutting up pumpkins, but I did it for you. You'll get minus points if you do that. <laughs> but if you do it with a joyful heart, we just believe that's going to sow seeds of growing oneness in your marriage. Now, let me just say something to the men. It's about love, not logic. It makes no sense. <laughs> I don't even think there's a real difference in how pumpkin tastes. But it's about what was really meaningful. And I think often we miss that. And we get into our logic mode instead of, no, this is meaningful to you. I'm going to do that because I love you. Now, let's circle back in the last few minutes here in this session and just talk about how does sacrificial love work in these three areas? So let's talk about communication. First, here does, here's how sacrificial love works in communication for most men. Talk more. It's not natural, but do it. Tell how your day was. Ask how your wife's day was. Where did you go to lunch? Did you have a good time? You know, just engage. Ask if you want to go over the top. Ask her how her mother is. I mean, just engage. That's part of the way we sacrificially do that because that wasn't, isn't often what comes naturally to us. If you had an interview that day where you thought you were going to have a promotion, come home and say, you know, I went in for the interview and I didn't get it and I'm really disappointed in that because I really thought that I was qualified. Share your feelings a little bit. It really won't kill you. And it will definitely help your connectedness as a couple. And again, let us just acknowledge that some men have more words than their wives. We, we get that. But just generally, it's said that women have twice as many words as their husbands, and that's because we have to repeat everything we say at least twice, whatever it is. And, but for, truthfully, for wives, I think that sometimes we just have to zip it. I think there are times when it's just not appropriate or helpful to bombard our husband with a million questions the minute he walks in the door. And just recognizing that because our communication patterns are often different, the goal is that we connect. We may do that differently, but we want to keep pressing. We don't want to give up on learning how to communicate well with one another. How's it work in the sexual area uh, for wives? Ask your husband to join you in the shower. Say, I'm having a hard time rubbing my back. Would you mind coming in the shower with me? He probably will be willing to do that. Uh, take more time just to snuck, or uh, don't roll your eyes and say, oh, just get it over with quick. 
Um, you know what that's like? It's like you're reading a book, you know, and, and he is just not involved at all, interested in it. He's making fun of you reading the book. Just quit it. You know, you, you want to connect in both ways, and sexually that helps. Uh, if you want to really go overboard, send the kids off and greet them at the door wrapped in only saran wrap. <laughs> Costco sells it in a big package if you want to do that. Uh, those may be out of your comfort zone, but it's sacrificial love. And then a word to the husbands. Um, make sure that you are non-sexually touching your wife. I think it's something that we give up somehow when we get married. I mean, before we were married, we held hands, we snuggled on the couch, we walked arm in arm. But oftentimes in marriage, our interaction physically is distilled just to the sexual relationship. Another thing is make sure that you are kind and serving to your wife even when you're not setting up a romantic interlude. When we were at seminary, our next door neighbors who had five children, the wife came in, flopped herself on our couch one Sunday afternoon and said, oh, Dave is doing the dishes again. And I said, and the problem? Oh, Dave only does the dishes when he wants to have sex. And I'm like over it. Let's just make sure that our Christ-likeness doesn't have an end goal that is going to be pretty selfishly driven. But on the other hand, this is the only legitimate relationship for the full expression of our sexuality. This is how God made us. And we realize there's so much sexual brokenness in our world. There's so many perversions connected to it. We have storied histories. Many, many of us come into marriage with a whole lot of baggage when it comes to the area of our sexual relationship. And the enemy wants to keep us burdened with our baggage. But, the enemy, but Jesus does not. And he does have the solutions, even for the places that we may have arrived where we're not really connecting physically. Don't give that up to the enemy. Mm -hmm. Seek help, whether it's through a sexual therapist, whether it's through it's a pastoral counseling, whether it's through reading a great book together as a couple, whether it's spending time at the foot of the cross confessing if you've sinned against each other or if you've hauled some stuff into your marriage that you've never really dealt with. Deal with it at the foot of the cross. First John 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And especially those of us who have Christian backgrounds where we have sexual sin in our background, we think, but God couldn't really take care of that. We're just going to have to bear the consequences for the rest of our life. But that isn't what First John 1 John 1.9 says. It's all of our sins are covered by his blood. And in the area of temperaments, it's, it's really working for people with my temperament to be less annoying. It's, it's trying to pick up after myself. It's trying to say, what are the areas that my natural temperament make it most difficult for you? And really work, set yourself up. Uh, I can actually pick up my clothes off the floor. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to do that, but... I can do it because it's important to Virginia. And so it's thinking about that and then making an action plan there. 
And I think moving from the place of judgment and condemnation towards our mate when they do things really differently, that's, we're not talking about sin here, we're just talking about your preferred operating system. And learning kind of how to laugh at each other. We had quite a hysterical time at an airport recently when Paul didn't get the TSA pre-approved, which we always get. Yeah, we fly almost every week, so we're always getting TSA pre-approved. And... Um, I didn't get it. And so we were at the airport early for some reason. And instead of arguing, I just said I'd go through with the common folk and, you know, do that. And so I went through and you had to take your belt off. You take your, you know, shoes off, take your computer out and get on the other side of the belt. And I'm putting my shoes on. A gentleman says, excuse me, but those would be my shoes. I said, oh, I am so sorry. I said, I don't even know what kind of shoes I had this morning. I, and these sort of fit. They came out next in the belt. I thought they were mine. He said, well, they're mine. I said, well, enjoy. And uh, so I took them off, put mine on. And then I'm cinching my belt up. And he says, and that would be my belt you just put on. <laughs> Virginia cannot comprehend that. But you just got to laugh at sometimes. <laughs> How many can comprehend that <laughs> But we have decided that it's not worth relational connectedness to die on hills like the salsa down the front of the counter. I shifted from pointing it out to Paul every time he'd come in the kitchen or leaving it there to make sure that I could make a point of it when he came in to cleaning it up. And as I'm cleaning it up, I'm thinking, I am so thankful I have a husband who makes great salsa. Do you realize that you can just turn that around and it becomes something very, very different? And the last D is delight. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. When we do it God's way, it's better for both of us. We were speaking in Portland, Oregon, gave three talks. The last talk was on marital sexuality. The husband turned to his wife and says, you want to go to bed? And she said, no, I think we need to talk about how our marriage is really doing. And they got in a big fight. She came and talked to us about it. And later that night, it was about midnight. And this is a five-star resort. About midnight, I was in the lobby. And there's this woman reading a book by herself. And her husband's in the room by himself. And I thought neither of them got what they wanted. When he said, let's go to bed, he was saying, let's go make love. And she's saying, no, we need to connect relationally. And I thought, how different it would have been if he said, let's go to bed. She says, no, I think we need to talk. And he says, okay, let's talk. I am sure after they talked and connected, she would have been more open to physical intimacy. Or if he said, I want to go to bed. And she said, yeah, let's go have sex. We can talk tomorrow. I don't think it would ever happen, but just for trying to balance the illustration. But what struck me is neither of them got what they wanted because they were being selfish in their own desires, if you will, where if they are thinking about the other person first, it actually works out better for both of them. Uh, you know, the end of Grace and Lou's story is a great story about God's redemption of sacrificial love. Yeah, we really wanted to wrap it up with this because we sort of left them in this pretty dire straits. They actually were separated for a year and a half. There were a, a whole lot of messiness in their relationship from infidelity to all sorts of other things. But by God's grace and lose repentance and grace's extending grace, they renewed their vows a year and a half after that meeting they had in our office. It was probably 
35 years later that we got, and we stayed very close with them all these years, that they were celebrating, I guess 30 years later, they were celebrating their 60th anniversary. They invited us to join them for a big gala in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where they lived. It unfortunately happened during the summer, and we were running summer camp, so we couldn't go. But afterwards, Grace wrote me this long letter describing what had happened that day. She said, it was an event to end all events. We rented a park. There were over 250 people that came, and many of them were related to us. She was one of 12 kids, and their families all stayed in that area. They were great, 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 great grandchildren, et cetera. And she said, we hired a band, bluegrass band. It was playing the whole time. There was a big, long table with barbecue, and everybody had such a great time celebrating our 60th anniversary. And all I could think of was, God is so good. We came so close to missing this. If at year 30 we had just thrown in the towel, we would never have reached this milestone that speaks the powerful work of God into the generations. And that's really our hope for all of us tonight. And we realize that there are situations where divorce is the lesser of two evils. Let us just acknowledge in this very broken world in which we live, some of you have divorce in your past and it was never what you wanted, but you had an unrepentant spouse or an abandonment or whatever. And we get that and God gets that. But for the vast majority of us, we have to be determined that the enemy is not going to win that in this relationship that God has created to be a reflection of the Godhead, his message to the church about who he is, the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that is seen in the marriage relationship, so much potential exists for us to impact the world with marriages that are truly Christ-like in nature and that are glorifying the Father. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The problem isn't we expect too much from God. The problem is we don't have a clue of how much God wants to give us as we follow him and his design for marriage. Father, help us to that end, to be those people who really believe in your word, who allow your spirit to work in our lives in such a way that we honor you and honor each other more fully. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. That was an amazing first session, and I think Paul ruined Costco for me. Um, So we have a few books to highlight, and then uh, we're going to take a break that will go until about 7.45. We have snacks out there for you guys, uh, some different treats, some drinks and coffee, and uh, and then you can swing by the book table if you'd like. I just wanted to highlight, uh, since tonight we're focusing on marriage, a few of the books on marriage. The kind of most all-encompassing uh, marriage book is the one called The Marriage App, which there is also an app that goes with. Um, the book that wins best title is called Loving Your Wife Like Christ When You Ain't No Christ. Uh, Hope for the Ordinary Man. 
And then this is kind of a fun one, just kind of the idea of jump-starting, is a marriage is a reflection of the Godhead, a, uh, a guide to strengthen your marriage, kind of like a daily guide devotional to, to launch into. Uh, but with that, you know, I didn't ask Paul and Virginia if I could do this, but I kind of feel like I'm almost like an honorary son now. So self-appointed. Um, so I'm going to give away a book. Uh, Daniel found out who was the longest married couple here. I want to find out the most recently married couple. And uh, I would like to give you a book. So uh, under a year, I know I've got at least one couple because I officiated their wedding. Anyone uh, who, who all's under a year in here? Okay, I see the couple I officiated. Okay, back there. Let's see who's the winner. Uh, under six months? Oh, oh, still raised. Under five months? Ooh, the couple I officiated went down. Three? Two? Okay, here we go. Let me run. I'm running. I'm running. I'm running. What's your name? Doug. Denise. How long have you guys been married? So September 12th. September 12th. One month, just a couple days ago. Congratulations. All right, go grab a snack if you'd like. Use the bathroom. You saw, we will start promptly at 745. We won't wait. So grab a treat. Check out the book table. Paul and Virginia will be back there. All right, if you can hear me out on the porch, we're going to get started again. I know that was a quick break, and there's a lot of good fellowship happening. Were you guys surprised by the brownies who got them? It was a good treat, right? We didn't know we'd have this many people. I would have gotten more brownies. Sorry. So come back in. Find your seats. I, uh, I wasn't prepared to vamp, but I'll tell a joke. Uh, I was driving down the freeway a while back. I got pulled over. Uh, the cop said to me, did you realize your wife fell out about three miles back? I said, thank goodness. I was worried I'd gone deaf. I don't really mean that. I talk more. I'm the one. I'm the one. Did you mute me after that, Galen? He started to mute me after that one. Uh, I'm the one in the relationship, actually, that talks more. So... That joke does not apply in the Burke house. Does that surprise anyone that I like more than my wife? No? Does that? No? Doesn't surprise anyone? All right. Paul and Virginia, you better get up here. Take the microphone from me. Here comes Virginia. We want to hear from her more than Paul anyways. So this will work. This will work. Keep him in the back. Uh, at family camp, Paul and I had an ongoing debate about who makes the best cookies. Um... It was really cute. He kind of mentioned it on Sunday, but um, we settled the debate last night. They were over, and uh, from how many cookies Paul ate, it became clear that he agrees mine are better. So uh, I'll just stop there. Here you go. Yeah, Jared, I hate to disagree with you, but Paul's cookies are known around the world. <laughs> Well, it's just out of politeness. You know, when you go to somebody's house, you should eat their food. 
It's like Elizabeth Elliot. She said, where he leads, I'll follow, and what they serve, I'll swallow. <laughs> and that was sort of how it was last night at Jared's house. <laughs> no, it was great. We had a great time. Uh, thanks for coming back. Were the snacks good? Good, good. Uh, there are people asked about the books. There's a, really a trilogy tonight in our image, which is the Bible study devotional, and it's male friendly. Most devotionals are written by women, and they're way too long 35, 50 minutes. This is 10 minutes a day for eight weeks. It'll be help your marriage. And then the marriage app is our sort of book on marriage. And then this book, um, Loving Your Wife Like Christ When You Ain't Know Jesus. So there is a trilogy, three for 25, if that's of interest. And there are a couple that we're almost out of. If we're out of them, you can sign this little sheet, pay us, and we'll send them to you next week at our cost. Not our cost for the books, but our cost for the shipping. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Father, help us. As we continue, we thank you for laughter and for life. Thank you for the opportunity to be together tonight. And we pray that now you will meet us in our last uh, session together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to talk about love and respect. And we want to go back to Genesis when we start this because it is in Genesis that uh, God's plan is sort of Satan comes in, and as we know, he tempts Adam and Eve, and we find in Genesis 3, 6, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, the, the first thing we want to look at is Eve's misuse of being a helper, which God designed her to be. Because you realize that sin hadn't entered the world yet, so sin wasn't prompting Eve to disobey God because sin was non-existent at that point. But by design, as we read in the earlier section of Genesis that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so God made a suitable helper for him. And that suitable helper literally in the Hebrew means that she is like, but she is like opposite him. So like establishes her complete equality. Up until this point, there are only animals and Adam. There was no other image bearer of God other than Adam. So Eve is the second image bearer of God. She is completely equal to Adam but she is like opposite him. She is different by design. Her role as a helper does not make her less than Adam. It just means that her predisposition, her wiring, is that she is going to fill in that which is needed. So as she stands before that tree and the serpent comes in and says, basically, you can make things better. You can be as wise as God. Things in the world will improve if you eat from this fruit. And in that moment, rather than obeying what she knew God had instructed Adam, which Adam had passed on to Eve, she let her desire to help overcome her desire to obey. And so she took the fruit 
she ate it. And a really important thing we cannot miss, and she gave some to Adam, who was with her. This helps us to understand why Adam is on the hook for sin entering the world. I mean, we can really argue that, especially men. Like, what in the world? Eve's the one who ate the first... Why, why am I responsible for it? Because Adam epically failed in the moment of challenge. Instead of interrupting Eve, instead of saying, stop, you can't do that, because we know he was there. He just let it go on. So Eve put helping above obeying. She's wired to be a helper, but she put, I'm going to make things better above obeying God. Now, Adam, on the other hand, uh, he didn't take any leadership. God had had spoken directly to him not to eat. Not only did he not stop Eve from eating the tree, but he ate it as well. And so there, there's an epic fail of servant leadership. But a man, Adam, was designed to be that one who really protected and satisfied and helped his wife. I just want her to be happy. I want to go. And so Adam put satisfying Eve above obeying God. Do you see that? So both Satan is so clever. He used the DNA of both Adam and Eve to trick them into doing that which is disobedient to God. And so in, when God is speaking to Adam and Eve, he speaks to them individually. They're gender specifically. And most of scripture is not gender specific. It isn't the fruit of the spirit for men, fruit of the spirit for women. But here and in Ephesians 5, which we'll read, he is very specific to male and female. And to Adam, he says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Adam listened to his wife. And so, gentlemen, the next time your wife says, could we talk? Say, no, 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 no. That's what got Adam in trouble. He listened to his wife. No, that's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is Adam put pleasing Eve above obeying God. And he did not take the rightful leadership that he had. And Eve, because she was designed to be this helper, when she's tempted by the enemy, she gives in wanting to help, wanting to improve. And as a result... As we know, sin enters the world, and the whole beautiful picture of complete harmony, of working together, of partnership, has really been blighted right here. Now, this Genesis 3.16 is a critical, critical verse, because it really describes what happened in the fall. So we want you to look at the screen and see a really important thing. This is God speaking to Eve after sin has entered the world. And he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16. There are many who interpret that word desire in a positive context. I mean, don't we think of, oh, I desire something that's good. But in this context, this is a corrupted form of desire. In order for us to understand what is actually being said in Genesis 3.16, it's very helpful to look at Genesis 4.7. This is the account of Cain and Abel, when 
the first murder, the first sibling rivalry, which ends in murder, happens. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's the same sentence construct and the same words that is used in Genesis 3.16. So this helps to inform us that what God is saying to Eve is that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. There's a corruption now in the power that God has placed within both men and women. That desire used in this context carries the meaning of control, manipulation, undermining, overruling. This is a result of sin entering the world that Eve and all of her daughters through all time will have a predisposition to controlling, to overruling, to undermining, to manipulating their husbands. That's what the word says to us. But the power is corrupted on both sides of the gender spectrum. And he continues and says to Adam, but he will rule over you, that Adam's power will also be corrupted, and it will come in one of two ways, either acquiescence and passivity or domination and overpowering. And don't we see that? You look at the relationship of husband and wives, these things are very, very apparent actually in every single one of us to a degree. I think the longer we walk with Jesus and the more we surrender ourselves, the more we let him reign in our lives, the less these effects will show up in our life, but they're there. This is our inheritance from the garden. And when we understand this, I think it helps us understand the tendency uh, of each other in our fallen state. That when Virginia is trying to help me, quote unquote, and I don't always receive that well, I think she's wired to help. That's what she's trying to do. And when I say, oh, whatever you want to do, uh, I really want to satisfy her, even though I should be doing more leading. Uh, see, women are wired to help. And when, when Virginia gives me a suggestion of how I could have done something better, I don't always respond well to that. And when I don't respond well, you know what her first phrase is? I was just trying to help. That's what our wives say. I was just trying to help. I'm just trying to help you be better. I was just trying to help you be neater. I was just trying to help you. Uh, And for me to understand, the reason she's doing that is she's sinful. (laughs) Well... Not always, but, but it is the nature of, because of the fall, women's tendency is going to be to try to control their husbands and tell them what to do. Because of the fall, my tendency is going to be t- to abdicate my leadership, my servant leadership, and just say, as long as you're happy, just do what you want. And I don't engage, I don't initiate, I don't enter in. And we hear wife after wife saying, I just wish he would enter in. I wish he'd take more initiative. I wish he would connect more. And so when we understand this, I think it gives us a little more empathy for each other. So how do we recapture Eden? How do we get back? Well, however, Ephesians 5.33 says, however, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
As Virginia mentioned, we worked with the Patriots for many years, and uh, their um, coach, Coach Belichick, is quite a theologian, and he has over the archway into the locker room a sign that says, do your job. That's a great, great sign. It's don't worry about the person next to you. Just do your job. And I think that's true for us. It's easier for me to think about what Virginia should do, and it's easier for her to think if I would just change. And yet our role is to help to do for the marriage what we can do. Um, Psalm 139 says it this way, and it's just very helpful. Search her, O God, and know her heart. Try her and know her thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in her and lead her in the way everlasting. Is that how it reads? That's how we read it. Come on, God, get her. If, if she would just get her life in order, if he just get it. No, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We've told a number of couples over the years, every day when you wake up, say this verse. Have that be your verse for the day. Lord, search me. Help me to be who you have called me to be. So if the fall in Genesis caused us to walk away from God's design, we want to now look at the antidote to the fall. And that's found in Ephesians 5. Because as we read Ephesians 5, a very familiar passage on marriage, remember that because of the fall, my tendency is going to be to abdicate my role as a loving, serving husband. Virginia's tendency is going to be to be a controlling wife. Now listen what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself." For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Do you see how this is the antidote? If because of the fall, my tendency is to either be dominant in the relationship or to abdicate my role, what does the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit's influence, say? Husbands, Thank you, ladies. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. If because of the fall, wives' tendency is going to be to try to control their husbands, what does the Apostle Paul tell women do? Thank you, men. Submit and respect. (laughs) Do you see, this is the antidote. 
when we follow Ephesians 5, we get back to the garden. So I want to speak to the men for just a few moments. And wives, please keep your elbows to yourself and your glances. Don't talk to your husbands. Let the Holy Spirit do that. He does it actually better than you do. So just uh, a few things for husbands here. The first thing is pursue your wife. Pursue your wife. You know, before we were married or early in our marriage, we tended to be really intentional about pursuing our wife, doing those things which would really mean, be meaningful to her. And the image in Scripture is Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, and he's intentional. He seeks out the, the, the bride. He cares for the bride. And so often, we as husbands, as we mentioned earlier, we're really good at that until we get married, and then we sort of slack off in the pursuit. But be a pursuing husband. Secondly, lead your wife. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And a lot of us men say, that's enough Bible for today. I love God's Word. I'm the head. I'm in charge. Little lady does what I say. Well, we'll talk about the rest of this, but don't miss this. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. And that doesn't fly today. And it's almost like the Apostle Paul said, I wonder if that's going to be unclear someday. So let me finish this. For the husband is the head of the wife as, now he's going to help us understand what that means, as Christ is the head of the church. I doubt that Pastor Daniel or Pastor Jared or any of your pastors have been speaking from the pulpit here and say, you know, sometimes the church has authority over Christ and sometimes Christ has authority over the church. No, I don't think that goes. And this scripture says a husband has been given the position of head over the wife. And without taking a breath, he has never to use that for his own ends. But don't miss this. As Virginia said earlier, he's on the hook. He is called to lead his family. He's called to be the leader. And so often we as men have not done that very well. Uh, we, have, we have just deferred. Just do what you want. You're the spiritual one. You lead. You do this. You do that. Instead of taking the leadership as husbands. But we don't do that in a domineering or dictatorial way. It is we are to serve our wife. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. I spoke at a men's retreat once, and a man came up afterwards. He said, die for my wife? Absolutely. It's living with her that's killing me. Uh, but, but we are to be those people who are loving our wives sacrificially, we're serving our wives. And often when we hear the word serve, I'm afraid we think, well, that's what she's supposed to do. But I think we both serve each other, there's no question. But when push comes to shove, the husband should be the chief servant. When I grew up, after church, we always had a big chicken meal and it was sat in front of the, it sat in front of the husband because he's the head of the house. Because he's the head of the house, he takes the best piece and he passes it around. May I suggest in the truly Christian home, it's sat in front of the husband because he's the head of the house. He has authority and because he has authority, he doesn't take a piece. He hands it to his wife. She takes the best piece she wants, it goes around and he gets a chicken wing at the end. Why? Because it's his responsibility, his, his privilege. He has authority, and his authority is always to be used to serve those that are under his authority. Uh, Christ came to serve, 
not to be served. And when we are called to love our wives like Christ, we are called to be the chief servants in the home. The surf may be up, but if the laundry pile is higher than the surf, stay home and do laundry. It's, it's saying, this, how can I serve you today? And then making that happen. And then lead her spiritually. Wives are constantly saying to us, I wish my husband took more spiritual leadership. And I don't know what it is, but it seems that women gravitate to spiritual things more. I mean, if there's one small group of women's meetings and you can go to it, you go to it. If you have time and there are two, you go to two. There are three and you have time, you go to three. Women just like to get together and talk, talk, talk. Men, not so much. I mean, even socially, you're at a banquet and a woman will get up and says, I'm going to the bathroom. Anybody want to go with me? And three ladies walk to the bathroom with her. Even going to the bathroom is a social event for ladies. I've never seen a man go, I'm going to the bathroom. Any guy want to go with me? <laughs> We're just wired differently, but don't miss this. Husbands, wash your wife, your wife in the word. That means, I think, take initiative. Doesn't mean you have to be to seminary or any of that, but take initiative. Say, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord and help your family in that. Lead your family in prayer or ask somebody to pray. Take initiative. And lastly, help your wife become more radiant and to present her to himself as a radiant church. I love doing weddings, and when I do weddings, I often turn to the groom and I'll say, look at your bride. Look how radiant she is. And then I'll think to myself, she will never look this good again. I mean, they paid somebody to work on her face, and they paid another person to work on her hair to make it look like it's never looked and it will never look again. And then they spent a whole lot of money and they put this dress on her to make her look good, and then they put the ugliest dresses they could on those other ladies that stand up there just so she'd be more radiant. I'm thinking this. I don't say it. But what I do say is 30 years from now, she should be more radiant. And there are a lot of wives who are a bit haggard because their husbands have been doing what they want to do, and the wife has been making that happen. But the person in the home who has the ultimate authority is a husband, so he doesn't have to surf, doesn't have to golf, he doesn't have to do this if it's precluding his wife from doing something that will allow her to develop her gifts, her passions, what God has helped her to be. See, our role as husbands is to help our wives become everything that God has gifted them to be. So God has given us authority in the home, but our authority is to be used to serve those under us. And before we unwrap the, unpack the women's side of this, I just want to acknowledge that for many of us, this is a tough passage. Part of the reason we start in Genesis is because if you just parachute right down into Ephesians 5, it doesn't seem to make very much sense. But when we understand what happened in the garden, what was set in motion when sin entered the world, what God said, this, these are going to be the effects that will affect all of humanity now for all time and eternity. That helps us to understand why Ephesians 5 had to be written, because we are dealing with a sinful nature that none of us escape, that as a daughter of Eve, I am going to have this predisposition to misuse my power in this relationship, and as a son of Adam, Paul will as well. So in order to bridge the gap between us, in order to get this going in the right direction, in order for us to have a marriage that genuinely reflects the glory of God, 
We have to take very seriously what Ephesians 5 says. The other thing I want to say here, though, as a disclaimer, is that we also recognize that there have been many abuses of this passage. There have been many aberrations. There have been terrible distortions that go on even to this day. I have spoken with many women who say, yeah, yeah, submission, I'm staying as far away as that as I can because my husband interprets that, that he's the ironclad ruler. Everything he says goes. I don't have anything to say about the finances because he brings home the bacon. I just have to put duct tape. Any thinking you have along those lines connected with this passage are distortions, and they really need to be called out for that, and they need to be absolutely rejected. But we can't afford to reject what is being said here because this is the reality of my lot. If I don't have a hand out of this, our marriage will be nothing more than an ongoing battle for power. This is the great power struggle of all time. And so the instructions to me actually are a way to freedom that will actually help our relationship work and ultimately reflect the glory of God, which is his plan for our marriages. So the instructions to me as a daughter of Eve are that I would submit to my husband as unto the Lord. Larry Crabb was very helpful to me years ago. He's a Christian author and speaker who in the past couple years has passed on. But in his book, The Marriage Builder, he said, submission on street level is resisting the urge to control. And that was extremely helpful for me as a much younger bride when I recognized that my tendency is going to be to control. It's going to be to manipulate. It's going to be to tell Paul how to do things, that he can definitely do them better. I've often said we won't even have to have these discussions if you just did it right the first time. I mean, honestly. And so that is in me. And when Larry Crabb helped me wrestle with, okay, wait, I don't have to say everything that I think. I don't have to put myself up as the great moral police that knows the right way to do every single thing. In fact, that is going to be destructive my relationship. Submitting means resisting the urge to control. It means remembering that I've chosen this man to be my covenant partner and that God has a plan that our marriage would truly be tied back in to his relationship with the church. The protection for me, especially for those of you women who are thinking, yeah, that's harmful to women, is the as unto the Lord part. So there's absolute protection for me that I'm not being called to submit. If my husband says, let's watch some porn because our sex life is really boring and I think it'll spice it up, we can unequivocally say no. That is absolutely not something I'm willing to engage in because that is evil. Or just, my husband just always wants me just to sign the tax documents without looking at him because I know he's cheating on him. What should I do? We don't partner with evil. But I want to tell you that that's not where most of us have a problem with this. It's mostly that my preferences trump his, that my ideas seem to be better than his, that my job is to make sure that he does it the right way to do it. And this passage speaks directly into that reality of my life. And let me just pause and tell you something that's the greatest news in all of this. Jesus is the model this passage explicitly says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So men, if you're not studying the life of Jesus, if you're not in his word, if you're not with his people, if you're not listening to solid teaching, which we're very thankful that if you go to Maranatha Chapel, you are getting, 
You won't know how to love your wife. You'll take your cues from a culture around you that will lead you astray. But Jesus models that for you, but he also models that for me as a wife, and that's one of the most comforting things for me. Jesus did everything the Father asked him to do. Not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus models submission for me, and he models headship for Paul. That is really good news for all of us. The other charge to me as a daughter of Eve is that I would respect my husband. I think we kind of gloss over that, like, yes, submission is a really hard thing, but, you know, respect, no big deal. And I would tell you there's not a man on earth I respect more than Paul. But I would also tell you that he has not always felt that respect from me. And I will tell you that the times he doesn't feel the respect from me don't necessarily even come through my words, although there are times that it comes through then, like when we're driving. I don't know what... I missed when we were raising our daughters at home, but his driving didn't really bother me then. But after we were empty nested, I found that I had a lot of time to observe his driving. And it was problematic. It was like, this guy needs my help. So I would start telling him when to change lanes and not to go so fast and not to go so slow. And why are you going on this route at this time of day? What and then one night we were speaking locally in Boston and Paul suggested that we drive separately. And I was stunned. I mean, this offends all of my sensibilities. Why in the world would we do that? Take two cards, la, la, la. He said, I just think I'd be in a better frame of mind when we got there. That was a knife in my heart. We ended up going in one car silently to speak on marriage. <laughs> and when we got back home, we unpacked that. And I said, why did you say that? And he said, because, he said, I feel like you're my mother. All of a sudden, it's like I can't drive. You don't trust me. You have to correct everything I do. He said, it's really no fun to drive in the car when you're talking to me that way. And I was shocked by the depth of hurt that that delivered to Paul's heart because part of it truly was I was trying to help, and part of it was just reminding him that I'm just so much better at some things than he is. I mean, right? She asked me, she said one day, she said, how, did you, how do you ever drive without me in the car? And I said, actually, very well. <laughs> but don't you sometimes miss an exit? Yeah, and there's another one next, and I get off. It's just not that big a deal. Well, actually, it is a big deal. No. <laughs> so sometimes it does come through my words, but I will tell you that more often it comes through my body language, through the unspoken It's the gestures, it's the tone, it's the size, it's the eye rolls. I don't know if any of you saw the recent meme that said, my eyes are the most in shape part of my body because I roll them 342 times a day. (laughs) Let me tell you that eye rolling, that sort of stuff, that underlying disrespect is not missed by our husbands. Our husbands actually have an extremely sensitive respectometer. They don't miss it. And that disrespect that comes through is a knife in their heart. And so you see the picture that's emerging here? If this isn't course corrected, we will defeat each other. We will cause each other to lose heart in our marriage. And for all too many marriages, we give up. And we may live under the same roof, but we're not really living a vital life together. And we don't have time tonight, but... When we've done this in groups where we've had participation about, finish a sentence, I feel respected by you when, or I feel really loved by you when, the answers we get 
or when you listen to me, when you say you appreciate me, when you don't correct me. They're just mundane, quote unquote, things, but they mean the world. Let me give you just one example of, of respect. Virginia loves turkey avocado sandwiches. So one day she was gone, coming home, and then we had to leave immediately and she didn't have time to eat. So I thought, I'm gonna be the real servant husband. I'll make her a turkey avocado sandwich. So I did. And we were driving away and she says, thank you so much for making this sandwich. That was so kind of you. And I said, oh, I said, I wasn't sure if I used the right bread. And she said, well, normally we don't use cinnamon raisin on this uh, sandwich, but thank you. And early in our marriage, that wouldn't have been the exchange. But one of the things that by God's grace, Virginia has done is she's seen my heart more than the performance or more than the product. And when you really are looking for the heart, he really meant well or she meant well, rather than trying to critique each other. Because as we've said, there is, a, there is an enemy. It's not each other. It's the one that 1 Peter 5, 8 says he is a adversary of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. And he loves trying to devour our marriages. Don't partner with him. Sometimes we'll look at each other and say, you're not the enemy. He's using you really well, but you're not the enemy. And let's fight against the enemy. I want to close with one story that happened, goodness, I guess it would be 40 years ago or so, more. I was the skipper of a boat on Catalina Island for the camp that I worked at, and we had two people come to the camp to trim trees. The owner of the company is Mr. Roseberry, and his climber was Curly. Mr. Roseberry's in his 60s, Curly is in his 20s. I picked him up at an old inboard boat, and we were out of fuel, so I took it over to the gas dock in the harbor and filled it up with gas and then started. And as Virginia's just mentioned briefly, I'm not a detail person. And, and so I started the boat and the, after we fueled it and the boat exploded. Now, the reason it exploded was, those of you that know boats, there's a big sign over the key that says, always run the bilge blower for at least five minutes after you've refueled, but ah, I didn't think that mattered. So I started it. I tried, It wouldn't start. I stared at the engine. It still didn't work any better. So then I decided if I would just pump the throttle. So I pumped the throttle and the boat explodes. Curly's on fire. He gets shot up in the air about 10 feet, lands in the drink. I am on fire. I get up shot up in the air, I land back in the boat. Mr. Roseberry gets shot up in the air, he's on fire, but he lands on his back on the engine block. And I carry Mr. Roseberry out of the boat. Curly and I get out the next day with relatively minor burns, but Mr. Roseberry is in for two weeks. Not only were his burns more severe, but when he landed on the engine block, he really severely injured his back. Mr. Roseberry lived for about 15 years after that. And any time Mr. Roseberry introduced me to somebody, this is how he'd introduce me. I'd like you to meet Paul Friesen. He's the man who saved my life. He carried me out of a burning boat. This is another way he could have introduced me. I'd like you to meet Paul Friesen. He's the jerk that almost killed me. And because of him, I have walked with excruciating pain every day of my life. Mr. Roseberry gave me a gift that day I will never forget until I take my last breath. He made me a hero instead of a villain. Same situation. He just had a different heart. 
And I think every day we have those opportunities with husbands and wife. Are we going to try to celebrate each other, make each other the hero? Are we going to praise each other for what they do? Or are we going to criticize and look for the things that each other does wrong? It's our choice. And let me just say, it's a whole lot more fun being married to two heroes than two villains. And the choice is ours. Father, help us to be those people that truly believe that honoring you and honoring each other is the absolute best way to live life. And not just for our own happiness, our own good, but Father, as we do this, uh, it's a witness to the world of the gospel and how your word is true and how when we follow your word, it's life-giving. So we ask that you'll help us. And each individual, each couple here tonight, Father, we pray that you will help them to increasingly find uh, delight in you and delight in each other as they honor you and honor each other more fully. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.